So let's talk about Daniel 2. Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had many dreams. His mind was disturbed and he suffered from insomnia. We've all been there, right? The second year. Now there is a problem here. Because chapter 1 says in the third year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was taken into Babylon. Chapter 2 says in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And you're like, wait a minute, how can that work? We know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are advisors in the Babylonian Empire in chapter 2. They weren't advisors in chapter 1. So we know that chapter 2 clearly happened after chapter 1, right? So why is chapter 1 saying the third year, and then we go backwards, and it's the second year in chapter 2? The dating contradicts the chronological order of the chapters and the events. Well, it's because one of the hard things of figuring out all these dates is nobody dates anything the same way. See, it's so easy for us. We have a calendar. We have clocks. We have things that remind And we know... People didn't date things. Like, we're like, I was born in 1977. And everybody's like, I know when that was. And that was the year Star Wars came out, and the FBI raided the Scientology thing. And so, like, we can connect it to historical things. I know that because I teach comparative religions. But, oh, you're like, that's a random thing to know. And it's my birthday, so I tend to remember weird things on my birthday. So, so we have these dates. In the ancient world, they didn't do that. They weren't like, I was born in 586 B.C., those are our dates that we've assigned on the ancient world. They said I was born in the third year of Nebuchadnezzar, and my dad died in the fourth year, and I, my mom got remarried in the sixth year of Nebuchadnezzar, and, and I had children, and that's how they did everything. So you actually had to know the king's reigns. Like, imagine that. You had to know all the presidents, and exactly when they began and end, because I was born in the third year of Garfield, and I was assassinated. I was born when, like, you had to, that's how they spoke. And they knew all that kind of stuff. But the everyday normal poor people, they didn't know what year the king was in. And so they were just like, I was born, I think, five years ago, maybe, something like that. Like, if you go to parts of Africa, they don't know. A lot of them don't know what their birthday is, what their, the year of their birthday is, because they don't have calendars and technology everywhere all the time. And there's no stability anywhere in their country to match up with anything. And so this is a very Western phenomenon to have preciseness on dates. They didn't have that. And not only that, kings dated their reigns at different times. Some kings would count the after they've reigned for a whole year, then that second year, that becomes year one. And they don't even count that first year. Other kings would count the year before they started. They, like if they co-reigned with their dad for a while, they'd be like, well, yeah, that counts too. And so different kings actually started their reigns at different times. And the only way we can figure out, like, okay, we're like, well, Cyrus is saying he reigned this many years, and Nebuchadnezzar says this, and Asategus says this, and you try to, like, match them up in some, like, sliding ruler kind of a thing in order to get more precise things. But they're all, like, and they're not even consistent. Like, Cyrus says, I started reigning in this year, and that's actually, like, after he's been reigning for a year. Then later in his life, he's like, I started reigning this year, and he's counting it differently. You're like, what the heck? So dating's hard. We do know that the Babylonians very um, consistently in what's called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar and on, we know that very consistently they did not count the first year of their reign. So for example, when, when Trump became president in, he was elected in November, 
but he didn't become president until partway through January. They would not count any of those months as the first year of his presidency. Okay, so let's say the president becomes president in July. We decided to pick July 4th as everything, July, August, September, October, none of those would be counted. They only counted the first full year, from New Year to New Year. And so Nebuchadnezzar became king in 605, but he would not count all those months that led up to the next year. So the new year, 604, that would become the beginning of the clock ticking for his first year. So 603 would be year one had been completed. The, the Jews didn't count that way. They counted a partial year. They counted from month to month. Like if you're born in May, you're like, I'm a year old in the next May. The way they would do it would be like, nope, your year begins in January of the next year. And you're going to have your birthday in January every year. That would be, can you imagine everybody in America celebrating their birthday in January? Birthday parties would just be horrendous. It's worse than going to graduation parties and trying to get them all in. We have a world birthday party. But that's the way they did it. Daniel chapter 1 is more of a Jewish perspective. So he's counting the months before of 605 as Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So therefore it's three years. But Daniel 2 is more of a Aramaic Gentile perspective. So he's using the dating of Nebuchadnezzar's dating, and that means it's the second year. And once you understand that, there's no contradiction. Now, why is it important? Because atheists love to throw these things in our face and say, see, the Bible contradicts. I will show you this and this and this and this and this and this. And a lot of Christians are like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. And, that, and to their credit, like, who reads this stuff for fun? Most people don't read this stuff for fun, and it's not that you're not intelligent. It's just that this is hard stuff to learn and find, and you don't even, like, Google this stuff. Like, we, 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 we feel like, wow, they have great arguments. But once you start reading this, you're like, oh, no. There's a very cultural explanation for this because not everybody thinks like an American. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Understanding these things, as geeky as they are, can also help assure you there are no contradictions. And one of the things I try to do with my students is I try to give them at least five or ten things like this that they can hold on to. And I can't make them memorize every refutation to every contradiction that every atheist is going to throw at them. But what I can do is I can give them five or ten they can hold on to securely in their mind and their heart. Then when they go into college and the atheist is throwing all these things at them, they can say, okay, I don't have an answer to all that, but I've got an answer to at least five or ten. And that assures me in my faith that there's reasonable, logical explanations for the other ones. And if I dig hard enough, I can find it. And so if you can have at least five or ten under your belt memorized, then you are sure when people fire these things at you and you don't know your answer to any of them, you're like, but that's okay. I know that there's probably a reasonable archaeological or historical explanation for this that I just don't know because I know at least five or ten of them that are true. Does that make sense? Part of being equipped is not having an answer for everybody's questions, but just knowing enough that if you can't answer and you know that there is a way to find it, or your faith isn't completely blown out of the water because you don't have answers. This is one of those things that you can hold on to as not a contradiction. So he has these dreams, he's disturbed. He's got insomnia. 
it actually suggests that this has been happening multiple nights. He could have been having a repeating dream. Like if you just have one dream that's kind of disturbing, you might just think, wow, that was the goat's milk I had last night. And so, but if you're having this repetitive dream over and over again, that's when you start becoming like, whoa, something is wrong here. Like I'm a little freaked out now and I'm disturbed. And that seems to be what's happening. The king issued an order to some of the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the wise men, in order to explain his dreams to him. So they came and awaited the king's instructions. Now, most scholars agree this probably shouldn't be viewed as very distinct positions of power. Like, there's not the group of astrologers and the groups of magicians. A lot of these terminologies overlap on each other. But by reusing these synonyms and all these different words, what the narrator is hyperbolically basically communicating is that everybody who was anybody was there. Like, they've gone to the Cleveland Clinic and the, this doctor, and they've called like this guy over in Asia, they've done acupuncture, they've done everything you could possibly imagine and gone to everybody who's anybody to figure out how to get this fixed in their body. And that's kind of what he's saying. Anybody that you could ever go is there. So they came in a way the king's instructions. Verse 3, the king told him, I have had a dream and I am anxious to understand the dream. The wise men replied to the king, what follows in Ara- all this is Aramaic now. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will disclose its interpretations. The king replied to the wise men, My decision is firm. If you do not inform me of both the dream and its interpretation, you will be dismembered and your homes reduced to rubble. Later, the implication is your house is going to be turned to rubble and you're going to be dismembered with the beams from your house. That's horrific. I'm not only going to destroy your home, but I'm going to use your home to kill you. That takes away all security and comfort right there. That's kind of what's implied. Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of people are like, wow, this is so messed up. People can't get away with this. And they like the fiery furnace and the heating up light. There's no way he could get away with this. Well, yeah, in America, because we have protection of rights and that kind of stuff. It's so amazing how many people don't realize that kings can do whatever they want, and they did. So then in archaeology, archaeology later, we discovered all these like ashes of bodies that had been burned in furnaces, all this kind of stuff. And we learned that actually burning people alive in furnaces was like Nebuchadnezzar's favorite thing to do. Like there was no Netflix, so you got other entertainment. <laughs> archaeology keeps validating the Bible as time goes on. So he says this. Now here's the thing. There's a strong Joseph themes here. Okay, one of the things that Daniel is doing is he's rooting this in Joseph and saying the God that was actively involved in Joseph's life in a foreign empire is the same God that's actively involved now. And that's important because everybody knows that Joseph is a part of the Jewish people. Everybody knows that he's the beginning. He's the founding father, so to speak. And everybody knows that God was actively involved in Abraham and the patriarch's life and all that kind of stuff. Joseph is a hero. He's like the George Washington, Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish people. But now that you're in exile and your God didn't protect you and you're oppressed and you're a refugee and all this kind of stuff, you might be going to wonder, is God around anymore? And by Daniel rooting these themes in the Joseph story, he's saying this is no different than Joseph. Joseph could have said the same thing. Where's God? I'm I'm a prisoner, a slave in a foreign empire. But he moves up the ranks and he's interpreting dreams. And what Daniel is saying here is, he was, he is, he is to come. This is the same God. This is the same God. But in Joseph, 
the king said, here's my dream. Now tell me interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, 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 no. I've been around long enough. See, the later came along, Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. And they knew, like, you can't get away with things with Pharaoh, supposedly. Well, you could, but they thought you couldn't. But Nebuchadnezzar and a lot of these kings, they weren't really revered like gods, like the Egyptians were. So the gods were often like something separate. So it wasn't uncommon for them to make something up. And just like, I had this dream, or you hear these words from God and it's weird things. And they would just make things up. And they would make it so general that it could be interpreted any way possible. So no matter what happened in your life, you're like, see, right there, it came true. Like the most famous is, is like the most common writings of prophecies that we have is the Oracle of Delphi. So when the Greeks come along later, there's going to be this mountain called Delphi and the Greek city-states. And this oracle, they had this virgin woman who sat on a tripod and she sat over a fissure inside the cave. And these fumes came up through the crack and she would get high and she would start babbling. I don't know how... Like, how do you discover, like, who likes the first frog and realizes it'll make you high? Like, that's kind of, like, who discovers this stuff? So she would sit over this fissure. Like, how many frogs do you have to lick before you realize that? She sits over this fissure, and she gets high, and she begins to babble because she's high. But they thought the gods had possessed her and speaking through her. And she would babble, and these prophets would write everything she did down and try to find, like, meaning in it to go to the kings and tell them what would happen. Sometimes kings would pay for a special reading, like get high for me and tell me what's going to happen. I'm going to go to war. Will I be victorious? And the Oracle of Delphi would say, a great king will conquer and a nation will fall. And of course, all kings are so cocky and full of themselves. They're like, that's me. I'm going to win. And they would walk away totally confident. And so if it came, he failed, they'd be like, you weren't the great king. If he succeeded, you were the great king. It was just so general like that. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, you're not going to do that to me. I want a good interpretation, which means you have to tell me what my dream was. If They believed all dreams came from the gods or Yahweh. And so if the gods are really speaking through you, the gods will tell you what my dream is. So in some ways, see, never, this is why he builds an empire. Nebuchadnezzar was intelligent. He knew how to do things. And so they say this. But, verse 6, If you can disclose a dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts, a reward, and considerable honor. So disclose to me the dream and its interpretation. They again replied, Let the king inform us of the dream. Then we will disclose its interpretation. The king replied, I know for sure that you're attempting to gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you didn't... Don't inform me of the dream. There is only one thing that is going to happen to you. For you have agreed among yourselves to report to me something false and deceitful until such time as things might change. So tell me the dream, and I will have confidence that you can disclose its interpretation. The wise men, the wisest men of the day, replied to the king, There is no man on earth who is able to disclose the king's secret, for no king, regardless of his position and power, has ever requested such a thing from any magician, astrologer, or wise man. What the king is asking is impossible. No one exists who could disclose to it the king except for the gods, but they don't live among mortals. Now, here's the irony of their statement. 
They are so right. Without even knowing it, they have spoke absolute truth. There is no man who can do this. You're like, but Daniel did it. No, he didn't. Remember, God told Daniel. He says, there's no man that can do this. Only the gods know. But where they're wrong is, well, where they're right is the gods don't live among mortals. And they don't. And I remember I told you this multiple times throughout the year. That one of the things that makes Yahweh absolutely unique and unlike any other gods is he is the only God that is absolutely sovereign and all-powerful as well as intimately, relationally loving, involved in your life. No other God is like, no other human. Lots of gods like Allah are all-powerful in their view, their thinking, but he doesn't care about you. He's not involved in your life. The Hindu gods are supposedly kind now. They didn't used to, but now they're loving and compassionate, but they're not all-powerful. The Greek gods, they don't care about you, and they're not all-powerful. And no matter how much your parents love you, there's an extent that they only go so far, and they're not all-powerful. The gods don't live among them. The gods aren't, don't care about them. This phrase is so theologically accurate, but at the same time, it immediately sets the stage for Yahweh to come in and show how he's completely different. Because he will do what no one else can do. And unlike the gods, he lives among people. And specifically, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this is, this, this is how amazing God is. He uses the words of pagans that do not know of Yahweh to speak theology and truth without them even knowing it. Because God can use anything. God can use anything. Because of this, the king got furiously angry, verse 12, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So a decree went out, and the wise men were about to be executed. They also sought Daniel and his friends so that they could be executed. Now this is not fair. All the wise men and all of Babylon are going to be killed because these representatives couldn't get it right. You've got to be really angry when you decide to just kill all your advisors and the entire empire. If you studied history enough, you'll realize that irrational decisions and actions from kings is not a very uncommon thing. There's a lot of times that kings do things and later they're like, oops. In fact, that's a common theme even with like Darius later in chapter 6 and with Nestor or Xerxes. Like, oh, I just gave an edict that's going to kill my wife. What am I going to do now? Oops. So that's not uncommon. Arioch is the guy who's going to do this. Arioch is the guy who's going to go from city to city to city to execute all these wise men. And that's his job. Verse 14. Then Daniel spoke with prudent counsel to Arioch, who was in charge of the king's executioners, and had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He inquired of Arioch, the king's deputy, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested the king to grant him time that he might disclose the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, of the matter. He asked them to pray for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends would not be destroyed along with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then in a night vision, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. So Daniel praised Yahweh, the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar shows himself to be somewhat reasonable. Or 
is it that God is guiding his reason at this moment? Because Daniel's about ready to kill him, like knocking the door. By the way, telegram, you all have to die because of what these guys did back there. And Daniel's like, please, escort me into the king's presence. He's not asking Arioch for more time. He says, take me right in the king's presence. He goes to the king's presence and says, give me more time, and I will see if my God can figure this out. God has to be with Nebuchadnezzar because he's furious and he's angry and yet he's able to think rationally enough and to extend time to Daniel who's really low on the totem pole. Now some scholars say, well, why isn't Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah there? Well, remember, they just got promoted as an advisor and they are Semitic Jews. So it's not like, I mean, you don't climb the ranks in one year like that. So it's most likely they're not in the inner circle of the king. They're out there. So Daniel's asking for to be part of the inner circle to give him the answer. And there's no motivation for why Nebuchadnezzar does it. And we're left only to the devices that it must be Yahweh who's getting this. But notice what Daniel does. He immediately goes home and he doesn't get out like the astrologer book and the pencil and try to do measurements and figure things out and look up the dream book that just came out on Google and all this kind of stuff and go seek Freud out and Carl Jung. And he doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. He says to his friends, let's pray. Let's pray. He doesn't consult the best lawyers or the best doctors at the time. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go to lawyers or doctors. You go to them after and while you're praying. His first default is pray. And he prays. And what's interesting is he says, so that they may not be killed along with the other advisors. This why that he's also trying to save the advisors' lives as well. And that fits with the Daniel who says, I don't want you to die. Let's work out a 10-day deal to see what will happen with me in chapter 1. And now he's looking out for all the other advisors, possibly. And God gives him the interpretation. And if it was you and I, we'd probably be like, oh my gosh, yes, and we'd be running back to the palace. Daniel doesn't. He takes the time to thank God and pray and write a song and a prayer to God, praising him before he goes back. You know if your God gave you the interpretation for the dream, you've got time to sit and praise him and write prayers to him, or God would have never given you the interpretation. Verse 20, Let the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes times and seasons, disposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those who are understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light resides with him. O God of my fathers, I acknowledge and glorify you, for you have bestowed wisdom and power on me. Now you have enabled me to understand what I have requested from you, for you have enabled me to understand the king's dilemma. Now notice that he starts with, all wisdom and all power belongs with God. It doesn't come from any other source or any other God. He is the one who lifts kings up and brings them down. Now remember, that's like the whole point of the statue dream. Like kings rise and kings fall. He gives wisdom to the wise. Now that's key. Because in, there's this common stories in the ancient years called what's called court narratives. And there's a very popular genre of this time period. And in court narratives, the wise men always figure out the answer 
by going to other wise men and other wise men and other wise men and they connect the dots like national treasure or something like that or some puzzle thing you go to this guy and read this book and you're like oh that makes sense and you go over here and that makes sense and you kind of put it all together and your genius is the ability to take other people's ideas and thoughts and connect them together and figure out the puzzle every court narrative always is that way Daniel is very much like a court narrative. It has all the common elements that typical court narratives have. You know, kind of like fantasy stories. Once upon a time, there was, there's common themes that all these fairy tales have. Court narratives have that. But the one thing that Daniel is drastically different in from all other court narratives from that time period is he gives credit to his God. You don't ever see that in any court narrative. The court narrative always ends with the wise man showing his ability to figure out what all the other wise men were saying and connect all the dots and come up with a solution. But in Daniel's court narrative, it's God. That is absolutely unique compared to every other court narrative in any other culture that we've ever read. And he says it's God. And there's over five times that he's going to repeat giving credit to God. Giving credit to God in just this chapter alone. Then he says, I acknowledge you. I glorify you because you give wisdom and understanding when requested. You have enabled me to do this. Not like, I am awesome. I figured it out. You have enabled me to do this. Verse 24. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Just reminding you the threat is still there. He came and he said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. That makes it clear that Daniel is interested in saving everybody. Escort me to the king and I will disclose the interpretation to him. So Ariok quickly ushered Daniel into the king's presence, saying to him, I have found a man from the captives of Judah who can make know the interpretation of the king. The king then asked Daniel, whose name was also Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I saw as well as his interpretation? Daniel replied to the king, The mystery that the king is asking about is such that no wise man or astrologer, magician, or diviners can possibly disclose to the king. Now notice that he completely agrees with all the other wise men. No wise man can figure this all out. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in the times to come. The dream and the visions you have while lying on your bed are as follows. But he disagrees with the second part of their statement. There is a God who dwells with men. And that's the God that's sovereign over all. Daniel affirms there's no man. But he disagrees that the gods don't live among them. The gods don't, but there is a God who lives among us. And remember, all through the Bible, we've constantly been seeing this theme that humans are always trying to ascend into heaven. We build a Tower of Babylon. We do meditation, enlightenment, and all this kind of stuff. And over and over again, men are trying to go up to heaven, up to heaven, become a god. And they're always failing miserably. That's what Isaiah 14 is about. All how you have fallen to the depths of the earth, just like everyone before you who tried to climb the mountain of the gods. But the Bible's full of God coming down to man. God comes down to man in the Garden of Eden and dwells with him. He comes down, stoops down to the Tower of Babylon to see what's going on. He comes down to Cain and warns him of the dangers of sin, crouching like a serpent, ready to stray. 
He comes down to Abraham and speaks to him and comes and actually sits in his tent and eats with him. He comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah to save Lot. He comes down in the tabernacle. He comes down the Shekinah glory of God. He comes down in the temple. He comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes down in the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the book of Revelation ends with the kingdom of God coming down to earth. And Daniel says there is a God that comes down to us. There is a God who dwells with us. No other God in any other mythology does any of that. And if they do, they're only coming down to mess with your life because they think it's fun. Daniel is, I'm telling you, all these books are constantly about Yahweh versus the gods. When it comes to humans, God is making the point that we fail most of the time. And when we do succeed, it's only because we're trusting in faith. Not because of how awesome and amazing we are, but because we surrendered in faith to God. That's a constant message throughout the Bible. The other big message is that Yahweh is unique to all these other gods. He defeats them in the plagues of Egypt. He defeats them on Mount Carmel with Baal. He def- and then we're going to see it here and here again in Daniel, where his wisdom is far greater than anybody else's. 